Luke chapter 10. We'll be picking up in verse 10. Title of this message is Left in the Dust. I expect a number of you remember uh, the movie series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins titled Left Behind, right? And, and that, that series of movies portrays the biblical rapture. Millions of Christians are fu- suddenly taken off the scene. Uh, then the chaos that was experienced afterwards as people are trying to figure out what happened, trying to understand uh, what happened to everyone, and they were left behind. And the prospect of being left behind in the Bible, it's not a good one. It's not a good one. Uh, consistently in the Bible, those who are left behind are left to face the judgment of God. Noah's generation mocked him as he and his family entered the ark, yet when the waters burst forth and the rain came, uh, they were left behind to face great despair. In Matthew 24, verse 40, Jesus says, When the Son of Man returns, it will be just like the days of Noah. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Of course, those who are swept away are swept away to God's mercy, to His safety, while the others who are left behind will endure His fury. That same principle is also displayed, or was displayed in the story of Lot and his family. Living amongst the Sodomites, the Apostle Peter writes this, While living among them, Lot felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You can see that in 2 Peter 2 verse 8. And as that shadow of doom fell across Sodom, And even as Genesis 19 tells us that Lot, um, he was hesitant to leave his home. At that point, the angels that were sent by God seized his hand, we are told, and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, and they rescued them away to safety while the citizens of Sodom were left behind in the dust. And as I read our passage from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 10, We are reminded that God has sent his laborers into the harvest. Verses 6 to 9 from last week describe or describe for us the reception of those laborers that they experienced in the cities that welcomed Christ. It was a good reception for the laborers, remember, as they were welcomed into the homes, into the cities that welcomed Christ. Today we observe Christ's response to cities that will not, that will not welcome him. So beginning in verse 10, Jesus says, But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we will wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That is their formal announcement now to the city. Jesus then tells those laborers, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? 
you will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, Jesus says, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. As you can probably see uh, from the start, there's an eschatological bent to this passage. Eschatology is just the study of the unfolding of the end times, how everything ends for the church and for redemption. Um, In regards to those cities who do not receive Christ, this passage is referencing the final judgment of Christ. Uh, That phrase in verse 10, in that day, Jesus is looking forward now. In that day, it refers to the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, where Christ himself will be seated on the throne and he will sentence every damned person to eternity in hell. In that day, in that day, even death and Hades itself will be emptied into the lake of fire. That is what we are told, Revelation chapter 20. Hades, if you're not familiar, is the, is the current holding place of those who have rejected God. Um, they've physically died. They're merely awaiting his judgment. That would be Old Testament and new. So when Jesus says in that day, he's referring to the future final judgment, and in that day, it's going to be very bad for, for numerous categories of people. In the passage, Jesus, Jesus even provides a list of places, by name, provides a list of places currently restrained by death, and they're shackled in Hades. And when I, when I say restrained by death, what I'm meaning is um, that Scripture teaches that when your physical body dies... Your soul continues to exist for eternity. You don't cease to exist ever. Your soul continues forever. But once you die, any chance for repentance or salvation, they're forever lost at that point. Um, Later in Luke chapter 16, we will study um, the rich man and Lazarus. Very familiar passage. The rich man physically died, yet... Not being an Old Testament believer, he's suffering in Hades as he lifts up his eyes. And being in torment, it says that he cries out to mercy. He's actually crying out to Father Abraham. But he's told that there's this great chasm that is fixed. It's fixed so that no man can cross from Hades back into the mercy of God. Folks, once you physically die, there are no second chances after that. No second chances. It's not uncommon to encounter people today who will tell you that they actually believe that after they die, you know, they're probably going to have another chance to repent and trust in Christ. That when they see him face to face, that there will be a final act of mercy, even though they've rejected him throughout this life. That's an error, folks. That's an error. That is not true. Um, There is no second chance. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says that it is allotted for man to die once and then judgment. The people who lived in the places listed also sure, sure aren't the only ones who will face judgment. Hell isn't reserved, folks, only for Hitler and for Sodom, and for Tyre. 
It's not reserved only for the worst of the evil. Uh, um, These cities listed are instead renowned historical places, places that every Israelite would recognize. And Jesus uses these cities, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, to amplify the severity of the punishment that the people who reject him will endure. It's an amplification. The first that Jesus draws attention to in verse 12 is Sodom, folks. Sodom. I've said before, or at least I've said it in the men's study, that uh, Sodom is Scripture's poster child for sexual perversion. Everyone listening to Jesus speak would have recognized how wicked Sodom had behaved. Wickedly. And the Apostle Paul describes what happens in places such as Sodom in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, when he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God has been revealed against what? Well, Romans 1 says idolatry, of course. Animal worship is another. And then in verse 26, Paul describes what he refers to as, quote, degrading passions. For their woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts. It's a distasteful subject, folks. I'll I'll admit that. But the topic is crucial enough for Christ's church, for the church era, that two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and three New Testament epistles, Romans, 2 Peter, and Jude, use the severest of language, condemning the evil behavior, calling out Sodom by name. Both Scripture and Jesus affirm that homosexuality and those who are complicit with it are elevated to the highest offense against God. A second offense Jesus draws to our attention is that of Tyre and Sidon. They were wealthy ancient port cities along the Mediterranean coast. They were were very famous for their opulence and their arrogance. We know a little bit more about the history of Tyre than we do Sidon, um, but Sidon was regarded as a sister city. They're about 25 miles apart. Tyre and Sidon uh, acted much the same way. They were very close to Israel, close enough actually where Jesus visited there. You you see that in Mark chapter 7. So Israel would not only be familiar with Sodom, the history of Sodom, but also very familiar with Tyre and Sidon as well. Uh, Concerning those cities, John Calvin accurately writes this, As Tyre and Sidon, in consequence of their proximity, he's speaking about how close they are to Israel now, in consequence of their proximity, were at that time abhorred for their ungodliness, pride, debauchery, and other vices. Christ employs this, Calvin says, this comparison for the purpose, express purpose of making a deeper and more painful impression on his Jewish countrymen. 
There was not one of them who did not look upon the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon as abominable despisers of God. That was the view of Tyre and Sidon. And and throughout their existence, their historical existence, Old Testament uh, especially, Tyre and Sidon were, they're emblematic of ungodliness. As I read to you earlier, Ezekiel 26, the prophet invests three chapters of pronouncing judgment against Tyre. That in itself, to invest three chapters against Tyre, a little bit about Sidon, um, that in itself displays God's displeasure with these two cities. Tyre was a very beautiful and ornate city. The Phoenicians, they were famous for their for their strong navies and, of course, the design of their ships that brought the finest of merchandise from around the Mediterranean back to their home shores. They were very proud, very boastful. The king of Tyre even referred to himself as a god. As a god. That doesn't go well. You remember what happened with Herod, right? That doesn't go well, folks. And uh, Ezekiel even described him, the king of Tyre, as a personification in a sense of Satan. And in chapter 26, God speaks through Ezekiel the prophet. Listen to this. Listen to this. I'll read it again. Behold, God says, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers And I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become a spoil for the nations. If you don't know the history of the destruction of Tyre, you should. The city was built on the mainland, the the old city, but the commercial part, the, the, the most important financial and, and government district, the strongest part of the city, it, it was on an island, a small island a half mile from the shore, half mile from the shoreline, uh, seemingly built with impenetrable walls along rocky cliffs, but in 606 BC, and this was the first part of the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, King Nebuchadnezzar came, he was king of Babylon, and he sought to subjugate Tyre under his rule, under Babylonian rule, and he initiated the first assault. He was the first wave that Ezekiel describes, but because he could not reach the island, he didn't have the resources, ability to reach the island, he broke down all of the buildings on the mainland into rubble, broke them all down into rubble. It was then later in 332 B.C. that the famous conqueror Alexander the Great demanded that Tyre surrender to him. Demanded it. Yet confident in their strong position, their historic defenses, the island closed her gates against Alexander's much smaller Macedonian army, closed the gates, and mocked him. Not not a good thing to do with Alexander the Great, folks. Angered and undeterred, Alexander instructed his army to begin scraping the rubble left behind on the mainland by Nebuchadnezzar, and they scraped it into the water and built a causeway 
out to the island, a half mile out. They mounted an assault, eventually was able to break through the walls. The end result was that he killed 8,000 civilians and sold the 30,000 others into slavery. That's what Alexander the Great did to, to, to Tyre. Cleared the ruins from the mainland so that there was a place for the fishermen to come out and lay their nets so that they could dry. It was a flat place, bare. Um, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. What an amazing fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy in Scripture, with precision, with precision of what Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great would do to them, written all beforehand. All that being said, all that being said with these examples Jesus gives, the people listening to Jesus were, were very familiar with the fate suffered by Sodom and Tyre, whether it was by fire and brimstone or whether it was a siege and a slaughter uh, by an army. Clearly, these cities epitomized the severest of judgments that were orchestrated by God. That's what they epitomized. What should be alarming to us is that the physical destruction of Sodom and the military siege against Tyre aren't the judgments that God is implying, folks, that Jesus is implying in our passage. Those aren't it. They're merely the precursor to the judgment that Jesus is talking about. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Um, Sometimes people think that the judgment of Sodom is, is wholly contained in the fire and the brimstone. But the truth is, that was just an immediate response at a point in history. That, that wasn't the full judgment against Sodom, just a moment in history. And the residents who lived in Sodom are still today restrained by death in Hades, where they're awaiting the final judgment, the real judgment. And the citizens of Tyre, they, they didn't ultimately suffer at the hands of Alexander the Great due to their ungodliness, their debauchery, their other vices. They too are awaiting the final judgment. And Jesus is suggesting the final judgment uh, for those cities. It, it isn't going to be pretty. It isn't going to be pretty. You get the feel for that, right? That, that's what the, the Jews, the disciples, actually the laborers he was, Jesus was sending out were supposed to, to get the feel of just how tough that judgment's going to be. But as horrible as their destiny is going to be, folks, it's going to be measurably worse for another class of people. They're the ones who met Jesus face to face. They watched him as he displayed his compassion, as he modeled for them love. They, They looked in with amazement as he performed the miracles. They, they listened to him preach and they watched him teach. And in verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, 
they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes were, was a, a cultural way of visibly displaying your repentance, your remorse. Then Jesus says, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. Woe to you! That is the strongest, the sternest rebuke handed out by Christ. The term woe, it means in a sense horror. Horror to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Those locations where so many of the miracles took place. So much of Jesus' teaching was given there. Uh, Bethsaida was a location, if you remember, we studied just uh, about a chapter and a half ago. Where, where Jesus notoriously fed the 5,000. And it was a miracle we learn in chapter 9. Uh, one of the most outstanding miracles of Christ, uh, this side of the resurrection. The feeding of the 5,000. And that was followed, remember, by a mass defection of Jesus' disciples. They left him. The teaching got too hard. The demands were too much. The miracles didn't save them. The miracles only contributed to a greater judgment. In Matthew's account, found in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 20, uh, Matthew writes this, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Lots of miracles, lots of teaching, lots of compassion, no repentance. The same is indicated even of Capernaum, if you look at verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Hades, the holding place for judgment. Um, Let's first just not ignore the obvious here. The obvious. Jesus isn't claiming in these cities that not even a single person trusted in him. He's not claiming that. Um, we know there were at least a few people in Capernaum, like, like the centurion who we studied earlier, who, who, uh, the Roman centurion who Jesus just endorsed for his faith, elevated for his faith. Um, but broadly, overall, the residents of these cities, they did not repent. They didn't repent at the preaching of Jesus, uh, and when they died, they were delivered to Hades. And the punishment for Tyre and Sidon, as severe as it will be, it'll still be more tolerable than theirs. For the cities in Galilee, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, that region where Jesus spent all this time we've been studying, ministering to them and, and, and caring for them, those cities where he invested so much time. Those cities, the hardness of their hearts and their unwillingness to receive uh, the Son of God as their Lord and Savior is going to be the ultimate judgment. The ultimate judgment. Uh, a commentary I have writes this summary. The message was clear. Those cities, no doubt representative of others as well, 
were to be more severely judged than pagan cities such as Tyre and Sidon, which did not have the benefit of the Lord's miraculous works and words. Culpability. Culpability, accountability. Um, The overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ, um, not through miracles, not through miracles. But Luke seems to suggest the presence of those miracles adds to their culpability. He doesn't seem to imply that the miracles alone without his words would have saved anyone uh, or caused Tyre and Sidon to repent, for Jesus' miracles never occurred without his words. The words were always there, the preaching of his words. But the majority of the people in Galilee, they didn't believe him. They didn't receive him. They rejected both his words and his works. He's going to suffer a similar fate in Judea. They're going to nail him to a cross. But the troubling fact remains that it's not only the presence of Christ's miracles that bring accountability. That accountability or that culpability also comes through the presence of his messengers. The presence of his messengers. Back up for just a moment to verse 10. Jesus says this, But whatever city you enter, he's speaking to the laborers now, and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we will wipe off and protest against you. Yet sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Then verse 16, He who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me, says Christ. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. This is the hard part. As I mentioned last week, when the people hear us preach the gospel, we are praying for laborers last week to be sent in the harvest, and the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. When when the gospel is preached by us, and once people reject it, they aren't rejecting us, they're rejecting the one who sent us. And today, since Jesus isn't walking the earth and preaching and performing miracles, rejecting the one whom Jesus sent, seems to be the greatest of offenses to God the Father. Rejecting the person who brings the gospel. Um, I would say that's probably with good reason. God would, could say, you know, I gave my son, my one and only begotten son, I gave him to suffer. I gave him to die. He was arrested by evil men. He was scourged and punished. They hung him on a cross to die naked. But by the power of my spirit, God says, he rose again and was seen by the apostles and more than 500 on one occasion. I gave my son to live and I gave my son to die. And then he lived again so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but has everlasting life. And God could say, and you reject him? And you're willing to reject him? Rejecting the divine message of the sacrifice of God's Son, that is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, to reject that message of love that God demonstrated through the blood of Christ being shed, 
to reject that message, what would be a suitable punishment for that? Considering that the love of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit displayed through the cross, I don't know if there is a punishment severe enough for that. But that's not for me to determine. But I do know one thing. The punishment will be severer than even that given out to Sodom. Who didn't directly reject God's son. Indirectly they did. This is what Jesus is saying, folks, to his disciples he's sending out. When they've rejected you, they've rejected me. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking the dust off your feet isn't isn't something we have to practice today necessarily. Um, It it was symbolic more than practical. In Mark 6, verse 11, Jesus says, Any place that doesn't receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. The dust is going to testify. The evidence of the the dust left behind the Christian's feet as they leave, will testify to them in that day. Make sense? In that day of judgment, God's going to say, I sent my messenger. They were there. And those people will be left behind in that dust. Folks, this isn't a movie. This isn't a movie. This is reality. Jesus sent this church Jesus has sent me, Jesus has sent us to witness to you, to testify to you. You're willing to say you don't want him? That you don't want him? What a horrifying prospect. Here Jesus would say, woe to you. You don't want my son? Woe to you. It's hard stuff. Hard stuff. Um, But there's one sin You don't want to be guilty of, folks. It is rejecting the Holy Son of God. There's a couple things we have to note before we leave. First, does the the fact that our act of witnessing makes people more culpable, and it does, does that suggest that we should refrain refrain from witnessing? No. No, you, you can't reconcile that to Scripture. Um... We can't say that, you know, we shouldn't go to the jungle or, or to people who haven't heard before uh, because once they hear and then when they reject the gospel, they're even more culpable. You, you can't use that philosophy. That can't be reconciled to Scripture. Um, those folks will be accountable to God for their sins regardless. The sins that they have committed, they need to hear that the love of God is expressed through Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying for their sins. That's what they need to hear. So we do witness. We witness passionately. It's the only way anyone can be saved. Second, regarding ancient Tyre and Sidon, since they were pagan nations, eh, similar maybe to North Korea today. Pagan nations, most of whom the citizens haven't heard. Um, But Tyre and Sidon, who didn't know Yahweh, Does that somehow leave them innocent because they don't know God personally? Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, They were sinners and they fall short of the glory of God because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Foreigners don't get a free pass. 
And even if they never heard the name of Jesus, God the righteous judge is bound to punish sin. It needs to be punished somewhere. Either it needs to be punished on the cross or you will endure the punishment yourself. God, a holy God, a righteous judge, must punish sin. Everyone's guilty. Again, Romans 1, as we started today, uh, everyone's guilty uh, by what has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they're without excuse. What they see in creation, they know there's a God, and they reject what they do know about Him. Third and finally, and this is an important principle that that Luke is going to unpack as we get a little further in. Um, Does God assign equal weight to all sins? Does God assign equal weight to all sins? Or are all sins, you know, just equally offensive to God? You know, I was falsely taught that as a youth in the church that I went to, that, you know, we're just all equally sinners, that sin is sin. I heard that phrase many times growing up, and, and uh, holding such a position, it conveniently absolves the leadership from ever stepping in to take any action against sin. Any errant behavior, no matter how repulsive the behavior is, um, because just all sin is sin. That, that's the position that's been taken. I've been taught that. Um, the result today is that many of these churches are rampantly overrun by the same sin that Sodom committed. Rampantly overrun. Even having clergy, quote-unquote clergy, who are open homosexuals, um, it's not, it's accepted, it's sometimes celebrated. That's what happens when, when you bring that down to its end result. Oh, just sin is sin. We're just all in the same boat. No. The Bible actually teaches that certain sins are more repulsive to God than others. That's a fact. It's clearly seen in the holy law of Moses, for which some sins, such as theft, the law uh, requires simple restoration, or sometimes two times restoration. The thief has to restore the property. That's Exodus 22. Numerous sins in the law, they require um, a guilt offering. Go to the temple, make a guilt offering. While still greater sins that are highly offensive to God, they're punishable by death, folks. Punishable by death. So God and the law of Moses, they don't assign the same weight to all sins. We don't get that in our passage today. Um, When a man takes another man's life or another person's life, his life is required. His life is required. Um, God views some sins greater than others. Christians need to train ourselves on this because we've fallen lax. And um, to discern what offends God, and, and Christians should be more indignant toward what makes God indignant. Does that make sense? Does that make sense that not all sins are equal? Stealing a pen or petty theft isn't as equal as murder. Even our own code in our own country gets that right. In America, in in our culture, perhaps the greatest evidence that that forces us to acknowledge that, that some sins are more offensive than others is politics, folks. Persons get completely bent out of their minds, one direction or the other, completely bent out of their minds for one candidate or another 
if sin is just sin and all sins are equal, then there'd be no ultimate purpose in voting, folks. There'd be no reason for it because it's just all sin. It's all just equal. Why would you even go? Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. Um, I doubt anybody in this room believes that. Not all sins are equal. But through studying the Bible, understanding what God finds offensive, we progressively over time come to know what greatly offends Him. Uh, A good example of that, speaking of growing up on the farm and uh, going uptown. And I remember this growing up, uh, going to the cafe. I might have shared this before. But the farmers would gather together, you know, about election time, since we're on that topic. And they would be considering to themselves who they should vote for according to who's going to have the best farm program. Who's going to give the best farm subsidy? Folks, is that really something God's worried about, do you think? Is that high on his list? No. No, it's not high on his list. Um, Jesus didn't elevate things like taxes on his list. He paid the taxes, not to give offense. I'm never going to elevate, God help me, a person's color in voting. Vote for them because they're one color or against them because another color. Those aren't things that we elevate. Folks, you're intelligent people. You know the biblical, biblical uh, standards. You're discerning. Don't need to say any more about that. But one more principle, and I'll close with this, is that you don't even have to participate in the sins of Sodom to be condemned with Sodom. You don't have to join the debauchery of Tyre to be destroyed with Tyre. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Some of us have done worse things. Others of us have done not as worse. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I don't know. In that sense, we're all equal. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For any sin, no matter how small, it separates you from the righteousness of God. Yet, folks, any sin, no matter how grievous, will not separate you from the righteousness of Christ if you will trust in Him. No sin can prevent you from getting uh, going to heaven except the sin of rejecting Christ. God sent His Son. We're here today. There's dust on our feet. As we walk away, some of it will fall off. Lord, don't uh, ask the Lord that He doesn't let anyone here be left behind in the dust. Let's pray.